you're listening to the Locked In Podcast. Here's your host, Algernon Cash. I'm Algernon Cash, and you're locked in. Uh, the holiday season is upon us. Of course, this is my favorite time of the year because we get to see family and uh, obviously give thanks for the importance of family and so much happening around our community and within our lives. But it's also the time that we start spending a lot of time in the stores. And I don't know about you, this past weekend, uh, tried to go out and um, actually just tried to go out for some dinner and could barely get in because out near Haynes Mall, there are people shopping everywhere and um, everybody's out doing their holiday shopping. But if you're out doing your holiday shopping, you're also probably noticing that we're experiencing some rising costs. Um, and so whether you're at the pump to get gas because you're getting ready to go travel to see family or you're um, out um, shopping in the stores for Christmas, you're going to see higher prices, even right down to um, if you're just buying basic necessities like eggs, milk, coffee, um, whatever have you within the stores, you're definitely going to see higher prices right now. And so, so many people are wondering what is going on? Why, why are we seeing these higher prices? Um, politically, some people would argue just because we have a new president, all the prices went up. Um, then others are arguing that it's more COVID related and there's so many different voices voices arguing so many sides of this issue. So I wanted to get a professional into a conversation to lock in with us, help us to better understand why we are seeing um, such inflation, not only here locally and at the state level, but really across the country. You have heard from Dr. Andrew Broad before on my show. He is an economist and former professor at UNCG Bryan School of Business. Um, Dr. Broad, thank you for locking in with us. I know you've got some new things you're into th these days. Uh, why don't you update the audience a little bit? Well, new since I retired in 2010. But yeah, I'm, I'm a self-employed economist who primarily does forensic economics. So any lawyers in your audience, I'm your one-stop shop for uh, forensic economics. Although uh, it's a product, it's a service that most people uh, hopefully will never need. Well, we, we do have some attorneys that, that listen to the show and a lot of attorneys that also listen to WTOB on Sunday morning. So um, I, I strongly would encourage you to look up um, Dr. Andrew Broad. He is available on Facebook, I'm sure LinkedIn. Dr. Broad, do you have a website or do you just do more of the social media stuff? Uh, AndrewBroad.com. AndrewBroad.com. There we go. And um, so, yeah, make sure you go check him out. But Dr. Broad, you know, I, I, I'm sure you're getting a lot of questions right now about just the, the rising prices that we're seeing throughout our economy. As, as I mentioned at the opening, um, you really can't go anywhere and not see higher prices than, than what you did before. Um, I know here in the last week or so, um, Tyson Chicken just announced that they were doing a 12% across the board increase of, of all their chicken products. Um, I know within restaurants, we're seeing prices that are sometimes 20% higher than what you would have saw last year. And then, as I mentioned, when you go in the grocery store, everything from eggs, milk, sugar, coffee, you name it, all your basic necessities cost a little bit more. Um, you know, politically, some people would say it's because we have a new president, but I, I think maybe you're going to share a little bit more of the science behind it. Um, what's driving some of these higher prices that we're seeing? Uh, well, sure. You know, I think, first of all, it's important to, you know, in a sense, go back to basics. I mean, we've had some really interesting times in the U.S. economy over the last decade and a half, and it has forced us to go back to basics again and again to remind us what these issues are. Some of them are things we haven't had to worry about for decades, for generations. Um, 
And the thing about uh, inflation is that, um, well, first of all, inflation is if prices go up once, that's not inflation. A one-time price rise is just a one-time price rise. Now, once we see it, it may look like the start of an, of an inflation, but inflation, strictly speaking, is a sustained and repeated increase in prices and the general price level year after year. Now, the thing about inflations is that they have different causes. Uh, and in Econ 101, we talk about what some of those are. Sometimes the cause is uh, a monetary mismatch. Uh, there, there's just too much money. Uh, suppose we printed too much money. There's too much money chasing too few goods and the value of money goes down relative to the goods, which means that prices rise. Um, that's something that we've seen in the past. And when it's a monetary cause to inflation, monetary policy is the best way to address it. But, you know, as with all policies, um, uh, you know, it's like being a medical doctor, you know, a doctor doesn't treat something caused by X with a policy that's with, you know, the treatment that's, that makes sense for Y. The same thing goes with economic policy and the same thing applies to inflation because the inflation that we're seeing right now, some have called it transitory, some have called it temporary, but the issue is primarily that it doesn't have monetary causes. It's the result of supply chain disruptions and bottlenecks. And the fact that um, we are in the, in the process of watching the US economy restructure for the second time in as many years. Um, there are uh, uh, tremendous disruptions going on and they're the reason for these, uh, for these price increases. Now, um, I know that uh, Algernon, you're an observer of, of the Fed, you know, what they do interests you in your professional life. And recently, Jerome Powell said, you know, he said, we should probably retire this word transitory, because I think what it had meant to a lot of people was that this was temporary, it's gonna be over soon, don't worry, you know, calm down. Um, but the fact is, transitory is the perfect word for this uh, because it doesn't mean temporary. It means, you know, pertaining to or describing a transition. And that's what we're in. We are transitioning from the COVID economy back to something that more closely approximates uh, the economy we had prior to March, 2020. It's a transition. And what we don't know is how long the transition will be. We don't know how long these supply chain bottlenecks and disruptions will last, but that's what it is. And it, it doesn't make any sense to, you know, raise interest rates or do any of the other things that some people are, are recommending. We just have to <laughs> uh, get the, the, the nuts and bolts side of our economy back to where it was before. And I, and I think when you describe supply chain disruption, like, for example, with gas prices right now, I mean, gas prices are significantly higher than, than this, this year than they were last year. I've although, seen some although people- I'll just jump in. They're, they're falling again. You know, th these things, uh, the, tr the recent trend is uh, prices, gas prices are falling. So, uh, but anyway, you were saying. Well, no, I, I was just going to suggest that, I, I, you know, a lot of times I'll see people say, well, hey, we, we just need to produce more oil. And, you know, if we produce more oil, that's going to bring gas prices down. But my argument to that is if, if, if you could produce all the oil you want to produce, but if you don't have refining capacity to actually right. convert the oil into gasoline, you, you're still going to see prices remain high. I, I, I think that, you know, obviously here recently, the president did open up the um, oil reserves, the, 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 the Arctic oil reserves, so that we could get more supply onto the market. That may be a little bit of why 
prices have started to, to come down a little bit. But but I, I think it still speaks to the production bottleneck that you're talking about. You know, same thing with food right now. You, you may have all the, the cows and chickens and, and, and vegetables in the world to harvest. Um, but you, if you don't have anybody that can actually drive to, to pick it up and, and produce it, um, then, then the production limitation is going to keep prices artificially high. If, if we know these are the obstacles and the challenges, Dr. Broad, is there anything we can do about it to moderate prices more quickly? Or is this just we're going to have to wait and see? Yeah, you know, the problem is that it's hard to think of which government policies solve this problem quickly. Uh, by the way, the oil reserve that the president opened up was the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is a bunch of barrels of oil underneath some mountain somewhere. And uh, the problem is that it's really, that move is primarily for show. It's a good thing to be seen doing. We don't have enough oil in that reserve to really uh, significantly affect prices. But as you know, uh, uh, market sentiment sometimes rules the day. Sometimes it's more important how market participants feel about the future than what's actually going on. And opening up the strategic reserve does send a signal that the U.S. will do what it can. Uh, similarly, the president has talked about uh, uh, exerting federal power to uh, you know, keep, for example, the West Coast ports open 24 hours a day um, uh, because we have, uh, I think we still have lots of container ships sitting offshore just waiting to, to be unloaded in Long Beach and the other West Coast ports. And um, we have tremendous mismatches. You know, the, the, the entire shipping uh, um, economy was a few, a number of years ago, containerized. Those big, uh, um, uh, you know, railroad car shaped containers that we see on trucks and, and certainly on ships and trains. Um, that's a, that was a great innovation in trading, but you have to have uh, sort of an even cross flow of those containers. And what there's been is uh, a, a, an incredible mismatch, incredible, uh, you know, a, a flow. There are too many containers over here and there aren't enough of them back in Asia. So there are all these little things. I, you know, I think when you, when I think about this, this problem, I, I really go back to, to the world that was present when you and I were children back in the 60s and 70s and so on, when companies had these things that we rarely see anymore called inventories. <laughs> uh, companies used to hold big inventories. A manufacturer would have a warehouse of the parts needed to make whatever it was making. And it had them on, on, on hand. And when something crazy happened, uh, um, some disruption, some economic catastrophe, well, it could uh, wind down its inventory uh, 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 holdings before it started facing any problems. But you see in the 70s and the 80s, uh, American industry started um, uh, following the wisdom of Japanese manufacturing in particular, but also to, to a large degree European manufacturing. And, and we slowly adopted JIT, just in time inventory management. And the thing about JIT is, I mean, it's a beautiful idea. When it's working, it's just this wonderful ballet, coordinated ballet of different parts working with each other, suppliers in tandem with shippers, with manufacturers. You have uh, in a Ford plant, you have the rear seats in, 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 uh, in Ford sedans coming into the plant only exactly where they are installed in the car. You know, not going to a warehouse, not going to a holding uh, pen of some sort. They go directly into the car. And when it's working, it's been a, you know, just a, a 
a tremendously, you know, almost beautiful thing to see. But here's the thing. JIT inventory management may have been one of the things that made us more uh, susceptible to the restructurings uh, both into and out of COVID than we might've been back in the 60s and, and the 50s. You know, maybe the economy that we were back then would have handled this a little bit better. But, uh, you know, modern supply chain is this gossamer thread of, of, of connections. You have uh, automobiles, for example, are made with parts coming from Canada, the, the Far East. Uh, they may be fabricated uh, just over the border in Mexico, but uh, you know, it's, it's a very complicated, a very complex system that when it gets messed up, it's really, <laughs> it's really hard to undo. And you know what? My other favorite example is toilet paper. Because <laughs> uh, you remember back in the spring and the summer of 2020, all of a sudden toilet paper was hard to get. And many of, us, many of us asked, well, why is that? I mean, we may not be using toilet paper, you know, at school or the, or the office or in, in churches or wherever, but we are using toilet paper at home. And here's the thing, what we learned, at least people like me learned, uh, is that there were two distinct supply chains for commercial toilet paper on one side and residential toilet paper on the other side. They used different packaging systems, different machines to make them. The products were a little bit different. It wasn't so easy to simply say, this side make less and this side make more. It was complicated. It took a lot of time for uh, the residential side of the toilet paper industry to, to adjust. And it took lots of investment. It yeah. took a lot of time. Yeah, and I mean, we, we saw that all throughout the, the, the COVID outbreak, even within the restaurant industry, um, you sure. know, c certain certain companies that would have been producing something in bulk for the restaurants wasn't able to turn around and produce it um, in small quantities just for consumers. We even saw it with hand sanitizer, um, right. with, with people trying to figure that out. So, uh, you, you know, I agree a lot, a lot, a lot of what you're saying. And um, I do think because of some of the, the, the production obstacles that we're talking about and supply chain disruptions that we've mentioned today on the show, I do agree that it would be difficult for the Fed to just fix this um, inflation issue overnight. I, I know there's been a lot of conversation about increasing interest rates. Jerome Powell has, has tried to you know, resist the idea um, but there are people that are call, calling for, for, for the Fed to increase rates with the hope that that would also bring inflation down. I'm not sure that, that it would actually work that way just because it looks like the inflation is more structural than anything. But, but we also have this structural labor crisis. You mentioned some of the container ships that are sitting off the West Coast. Part of the reason they're sitting there is we don't have enough people to actually unload them. Um, and and that's, that's become a problem. You know, what, how do we address the labor crisis? I, I mean, you know, I'm not one that subscribes to this idea. I mean, everybody thought as soon as the extended unemployment benefits got turned off, there would no longer be a labor crisis. A lot of those people turned out to be wrong. Um, but what, what do you think we need to do to address this ongoing labor crisis within our economy? Yeah, you know, I think there's a, an overhang uh, in, the, in the, labor, uh, the labor market as well. I mean, you're right, emergency extended unemployment benefits are, are over. Um, and, and you know, you're exactly right, things didn't suddenly change, but there is kind of an overhang, which is that um, the thing that the, the COVID uh, um, uh, employment, unemployment benefits and other uh, uh, stimulus type payments did was they put a lot of money in people's pockets and their bank accounts. And uh, one of the things we saw was that spending didn't drop at all. 
Now, again, just to make my restructuring point again, what happened is that we started buying less in the way of services and more in the way of goods. Fewer restaurant purchases and haircuts. I'm still in the, the mode of, uh, you know, my COVID hair is still here. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, but we bought more uh, office, uh, you know, home office furniture, uh, exercise equipment. We bought more goods. And that too led to this, you know, this, this disruption, this, this, the, the economy had to adjust to it. Well, the overhang in labor is that as near as uh, the last data I've seen indicate that a lot of households still are holding on to the savings that they accrued during um, uh, you know, the worst of the lockdowns. Now you'll find sort of progressives and, and, and labor oriented people saying that, you know, what's really going on is that people have figured out that their jobs were, were unpleasant and, they, and, and they're just saying no <laughs> to employers. And as an economist, I sort of find that a little hard to believe. Um, you know, in economics, you know, it's a little reductionist, I suppose, but we tend to think that if people don't have much money, they're gonna to wanna to work. And uh, the fact that uh, people are still uh, um, showing the ability to pick and choose between, you know, working and maybe staying at home a little bit longer, you know, I think indicates that we still, we, we have a savings overhang. Well, that too is transitory. And the fact is, you know, we had to do it. You know, we couldn't not support people during the worst of the pandemic. However, I think the natural, unfortunately, the, the natural outcome of that is that it's led to this, where it's a little bit hard. Um, it, it's going to be hard to find workers while this savings overhang lasts. Um, the natural question, of course, is how much longer will it last? Thank you for not asking that, because I don't know. Um, but I'm just not up on those data, but you know, it can't last forever. You know, again, it's one of those things. Uh, we're in a transition and there are a lot of ugly parts of it. And at some point it'll be over. And by the way, one, one quick word about interest rates. I I'm really happy that Jerome Powell has resisted calls to raise interest rates because, you know, what are these companies, you know, the companies that adjust to the, the changing supply chain realities of this 2021 economy, what do they need to do? They need to tool up. They need to invest. They need to uh, get the right machines in place, the right factories in place. Rising interest rates would make things worse. You know, if this were a monetary caused or yeah, a monetarily caused inflation, that might make sense. The economy is overheated. Let's uh, let's let's tamp it down a bit. But in the particular kind of economy and the particular kind of inflation we're witnessing. Raising interest rates would make things worse, not better. Well, you know, Dr. Broad, I was going to tell you, you, you may want to learn how to cut your own hair like, like I did. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's a lot cheaper. You could just go bald like me. It's easy to do. You just need a mirror, some clippers, and you, you, you can save a lot of money. Um, but but I, I think your comments are right about the, 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 the savings overhang, as you call it. I think I read an article in the New York Times that talked about, you know, Americans are flush with cash. They actually put a dollar amount to it that I can't recall right now. Um, but bank accounts are flushed. A lot of that had to, to do with some of the federal stimulus programs that existed and, and just people generally being nervous about the economy and, and conserving a lot more. I also think the thing that has not or the, the issue that's not been talked about enough is the, the transition of people to the gig economy. And I, I, I like to remind restaurant owners that, you know, all those door dashers and folks running in and out of your restaurant that are delivering for Uber Eats and um, the, the, the folks who are driving Lyft and Uber and, and just all of this that you see happening around your city, all of the, the convenience that has happened, 
Those are the same people that would have been waiting tables two years ago. Those are the same people that would have been bartenders two years ago. So you, you've seen this gradual shift of people um, into the gig economy um, where people are becoming either their own business owner or an independent contractor. And I, I think sometimes that's a little hard to track too, you know, with the way we still measure labor here in, 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 our, in, our, in our country and in, in the economy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm starting to run out of time. I do want to ask you a couple more questions. I know you're not a housing expert, but you, you, you do know a lot about the economy and certain trends. Um, right now, we're seeing housing affordability um, really on the decline. The, the, the price to buy a new home is, is skyrocketing. A lot of people understand that that's being fueled by investors who, who are coming into the space, um, certainly chase, chasing profit with, with low interest rates and, and the bank financing and et cetera. Um, we, we also see rents going much higher. So if you live in apartments, you're, you may be seeing your rent go up 10, 15, 20%, depending on what market you live in. I know right here in uh, Forsyth County, I talked to the mayor and um, the, the city of Winston-Salem needs um, 16,000 affordable units developed over the next eight years. Um, it, it is just a, just a daunting number. Um, when you look at housing right now as an economist, what are, you, what are, what are your thoughts? And, and how does the, the decline of housing affordability impact families' ability to keep this economy going? Well, it's huge. I mean, for many people, uh, their house is their single biggest financial investment. That's their biggest asset. Um, and uh, it has a lot to do with uh, the ability to spend uh, and the ability, just aside from economics, the ability to lead what we think of as um, a, a good American life uh, with the, the home and the picket fence. But, you know, that doesn't apply to cities and, and uh, you know, where apartment living is much, uh, a much bigger factor. Um, you know, when, when my understanding of what real estate economists are saying is that when you look around the country, I mean, it's so hard to separate what's going on now from what the underlying causes, right? You know, the gig economy was happening before and it wasn't tearing things apart. You know, my guess is that when this is over, the gig economy is going to die down a little bit because not everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Some people like a paycheck, they like a salary. Um, and with the housing market, it's something similar because uh, there, there's so, there are so many weird and, and, and unprecedented adjustments to this. Um, people moving home with their parents, et cetera, et cetera. But when you look around the country, the way things were prior to the pandemic was that you could look at the cities that had the, the strictest building codes uh, and construction codes, and, and and the ones that did were the ones that had the highest housing prices. I mean, when uh, you know we're talking about zoning, we're talking about nimbyism. Uh, when uh, when a neighborhood bands together to say we you know we are opposed to this uh, multifamily uh, apartment complex down the street because we're afraid that it will cause, you know, take your pick, crime, traffic, whatever. Um, you know, this kind of process is a big part and perhaps the definitive part of, of what is restricting housing supply. And what's very interesting about it is that this is an issue that crosses ideological and in any case, partisan boundaries. You know, um, uh, liberals often are the ones uh, aligning themselves with those uh, uh, opposing more building. So, uh, you know, I think one of the biggest things that could happen, this isn't a federal issue. I mean, I guess it could be made a federal issue, but um, it, it appears that we have kind of zoned ourselves out of, uh, to some degree, out of affordable housing. And hmm. one of the big factors, one of the, the, the best ways to address this is to 
allow more building and, and allow, you know, in cities, sometimes they allow building, but they don't allow tall buildings, right? And, and that's a very efficient way to house people in a dense urban core. So, you know, uh, so uh, looser, uh, more relaxed, uh, I would say smarter uh, building and zoning codes might be the biggest solution there. That's an interesting idea. I, I really like your, your your thinking on that. We may may have to come back to that one in 2022 and talk more about it. I actually just um, con- concluded a meeting with Habitat for Humanity where we're talking about putting together an affordable housing coalition to, to try to have these conversations and lead this discussion. And I, I do think part of what we're seeing today is after the 2008-2009 real estate crash and crisis, um, we just stopped building houses. You, you know, you couldn't get financing to, to build these subdivisions. You couldn't get financing to develop any land. Banks didn't want to be in that business any longer. And we just stopped building. And, and so, you, you know, now I think we're paying the price in addition to what you're saying in, in terms of some of the regulations, which I completely agree about, agree on. Um, it, it, you know, when you stop building for many, many years, um, it's going to take some time to catch up to that. And I, I think we're trying to catch up to it at a time when you know raw material prices are going crazy, um, you have a labor crisis. It's harder and harder to get people to come out and work on a construction site. Um, and and so yes, we we need to be looking at some of the regulations you talked about. I also think I'm a huge huge fan of of we need to be looking at a comprehensive immigration program, um, simply because the, the the bottom line is we have jobs that are available in this country nowadays, especially related to construction, that Americans just seem to not want to do any longer. Um, they, they don't apply. They don't show up for these job sites. So we, we are going to have to look at some kind of comprehensive immigration program that allows people, migrant workers, to come here and, and come work here legally um, to, to fill some of these jobs in construction and food service um, and agriculture and, and so many other areas where Americans have just decided that they don't they no longer want to do these jobs any longer. Um, here's my last question. We just got a state budget. Um, it's the first one in North Carolina since 2017. Uh, Republicans and Democrats finally came together to pass a budget and Governor Cooper just signed it. I don't want to get into the whole budget. I do encourage my audience to go read and learn more about it. It's a $25.9 billion deal. A lot of pet projects in the bill. A lot of them I actually agree with. And, you know, a lot of one-time investments that the General Assembly agreed to make. So not necessarily a large permanent expansion to government, but we are making some really interesting investments um, with this budget. The point I want to single in on with you, Dr. Broad, is this budget is going to mandate for every public employee, state employee across the state, um, minimum wage now is $15 an hour. Um, Some would believe this is sort of inching us towards um, a state minimum wage of $15 an hour. What's your reaction to that? What are your thoughts on it? It's unlikely to make make a big difference. It's not going to um, uh, uh, change the economy by that much. Um, uh, almost 20 years ago, I chaired a commission in the city of Greensboro to look at a living wage ordinance in Greensboro. And really one of the things that we found, uh, and, and we were talking only about a living wage uh, as it was then defined, I, I think it was something on the order of $10 an hour then, but, uh, but, but it was only going to apply to city workers, city, you know, direct city employees and, um, uh, and workers who were contracted to the city, but only during the time that they were working on city jobs. You know, the city, no city in North Carolina can mandate a minimum wage to all employers. So this was gonna be fairly limited in scope. And one of the things that really stood out about our analysis was how little it was going to add to the overall city budget. Even the most expansive 
version of the minimum wage ordinance that we considered was going to add a you know percentage point or something like that uh, to, to the overall city budget. Uh, it was rejected as being too expensive, but you know that's uh, that's North Carolina for you. Um, so I guess my my point is that. Uh, you know, that's just the city of Greensboro, not the entire state of North Carolina. But you, you have a lot of people who are already making more than $15 an hour. That corresponds to about $30,000 a year. And, um, uh, you know, some people will get raises. But I, I don't see this as, as being, you know, some sort of camel's nose under the tent. If it sets an example uh, for uh, private employers, well, then fine. Um, but, um, you know, I... I I don't see it as having any any large effect. It's it's a signal. It's a symbol. I I, I support it, but it's not going to uh, cost uh, uh, the state's taxpayers that much more, and it will have no direct impact on private employers unless they want to. Well, Dr. Broad, as always, I do appreciate you locking in. For my audience who locked in today, if you do want to learn more about the state budget, I've recently had conversations with uh, Representative Jeff Singer, as well as State Senator Joyce Kravick and North Carolina State Treasurer Dale Falwell. You can find all those conversations. They're available um, on the Facebook page. I believe they're also on YouTube, so you can go watch those. Uh, I know next week we've got um, State Representative John Hardister will be with us. So we'll be talking more about state politics. Um, also, make sure you keep stay, stay tuned to WTOB every Sunday morning. That's where you can catch the show. If you happen to miss it there and you still want to listen, you can always download the podcast. It's available at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, wherever your favorite podcast is. You can subscribe to Locked In with Algernon Cash. And as always, I encourage you to make sure you're a subscriber on YouTube. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Facebook. Until next time, y'all stay locked in. The executive producer of the Locked In podcast is Algernon Cash for WCG. The associate producer is Tim Beeman for Such and Such Media. The views and opinions in this podcast are solely those of the contributors and are not necessarily those of our distributors or hosting company. This podcast is copyrighted and cannot be reproduced without express written consent of WGC.